Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. You're hearing an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast, brought to you, of course, by Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Eviatar Zerubavl on the show, and we're talking about his terrific book, Taken for Granted, The Remarkable Power of the Unremarkable. It's out from Princeton University Press in 2018. Eviatar, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Absolutely. Could you begin the conversation by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, I'm a sociologist. I teach at Rutgers University. I got my PhD in University of Pennsylvania in 1976. I've taught in University of Pittsburgh, in Columbia, at Stony Brook, and I've been at Rutgers since 1988. And I'm... Uh, the author of 13 books that deal with various topics ranging from hospital schedules to the development of the seven-day week to 16th century maps of the Americas to conspiracies of silence to genealogy and so on. So this is a book, Taken for Granted is a book about what we take for granted, what we assume by default. Yeah, um, you're a man after my own heart with uh, the, the range of your interests. I, I'm, I'm similar in this way. I can't decide what I want to write about. So can you tell us why you wrote Taken for Granted and what you were hoping to accomplish with the book? Yes. Uh, the, challenge, the challenge that I had when I started thinking about this book was how to... How to how to talk about that stuff which we don't talk about. Not because, and I wrote, as I mentioned, I wrote a book on conspiracies of silence called The Elephant in the Room. And this is different. This is not about the stuff that we deliberately not talk about, but we stuff the stuff that is just stays there in the background because it's assumed by default. So why talk about it? So for example, uh, I'm very struck by the fact that there are road signs that tell me that the road ahead of me to anticipate a curve in the road. But I don't have anything that tells me to anticipate a straight road. (laughs) And most of the roads that I drive on are straight. So this is the kind of stuff that interests me, uh, is to challenge the, the... taken for granted to challenge that which we take as a given which is we assume by default why is there a term such as uh, openly gay but there isn't a term such as openly straight for example why did uh, why is barack obama perceived as a black man whose mother was white rather than as a white man whose father was black so this is the kind of stuff that has always interested me. One of my earlier books, Social Mindscapes, I start with the question of why is it that when we take a hamburger and we add a piece of cheese, it's called cheeseburger, but when we add piece of some ketchup, it doesn't become a ketchup burger. <laughs> so this is the kind of this is the kind of questions that I like to ask to tease the reader. To, to actually think about the stuff that he or she don't think about. But it's actually the stuff that the world is made of. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. I really like the point about the 
hamburger and the cheeseburger as somebody who likes hamburgers and cheeseburgers. So the distinction between marked and unmarked is fundamental to the book. Can you tell us a little bit about this distinction and give us some more examples? Yes, the distinction is actually I'm borrowing distinction that a couple of linguists, semioticians, Roman Jakobson and Trubetskoy developed in 1930. So it's been within linguistics, it's been a very, uh, very important distinction between voiced and unvoiced, for example, and so on. Uh, but it stayed within linguistics for more than 50 years. And then I was working on a book on the week, the history of the week and the phenomenology of the week. And I noticed that there were two very different uh, seven-day weeks historically, the Jewish seven-day week, which later became also the Christian and the, and the secular, and the astrological seven-day week, where all the names of the days of the week in English, for example, still are derived. And I noticed that the difference between those weeks is that in the Jewish week, you have six days that don't may have any meaning. And seventh day, the Sabbath, or Saturday, that is the marked day. In the astrological week, it's not like that. So in Hebrew, for example, to this day, the days of the week are called first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, and Shabbat, the Sabbath. So they are named after the Sabbath. On the other hand, in, the, in English, for example, <laughs> there's a day of the sun, the day of the moon, and so on and so forth, and all the days are marked. So I started realizing that there's a great potential for sociological theorizing if we take this distinction from linguistics between marked and unmarked. And uh, so basically, this is the difference between a cheeseburger and a non-ketchup burger. Okay, this is the difference between uh, having a, on the train a car that says a uh, quiet car and the other cars not marked as noisy cars because you know that they're noisy. <laughs> or, you know, when you, when, you, when you drive in a city and there is a lane for bikes and it says bike lane or there is a drawing of a bike, but you don't have any drawings or, or terms such as car lanes and so on and so forth. So there is a, there is a, you know, if I'm invited for dinner and I'm vegetarian, I'm expected to announce that I don't eat meat. If I'm invited to dinner and I, and I do eat meat, I'm not expected to announce that yeah. I eat meat. <laughs> so there's this asymmetry, and I talk about it as semiotic asymmetry between marked phenomena and unmarked phenomena. And what's interesting, of course, sociologically, is that they are collectively marked and collectively unmarked. It's not just about an individual's decision to mark the world. It's about the fact that the world is culturally marked or unmarked for us collectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to actually you've prompted a thought, and that is there are idiosyncratic markings in the sense that there are some things that individuals will notice constantly and repeatedly that the collective will not. 
that's kind of right. an aside. I just this just occurred to me. It's true. It's true. I can say, for example, that something happened the week before I fractured my elbow. But you won't know what I'm talking about right. yeah, that because you sense. didn't yes. know that I fractured my elbow. Yeah, that's exactly right. Phobias, things like this. I'm also thinking of, I guess, what we might call kinks or something like this. The person that is really excited about female shoes is going to really note female shoes yes. all the time, whereas yes. I don't know anything about them or right. know what I ever see them. Yeah. As you just said, it's about noting. It's about noticing. So I wrote before, taken for granted, another book called Hidden in Plain Sight, which talked about the distinction between figure and background, figure and ground. And it's much more about perception. This book is much more on the use of language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, you, you have a rather striking sentence in the book that I liked, and, and, and it's uh, wonderful English. Markedness is inversely related to statistical prominence. There's a lot yes. in that sentence. Can you talk yes. about it? Yes. So when you have in statistics a normal distribution of phenomena, you have the famous bell-shaped curve, and most of the phenomena in the world are going to be covered by, by that curve. And then there is the stuff in the fringes that isn't. Well, that stuff in the middle, which is most of reality, is, uh, is not marked. There's nothing, there's no reason to mark it because we assume it by default. So we mark the stuff. So for example, um, if you are, if you are very promiscuous, for example, and you're called a slut, if you are the reverse of that, you're called a virgin. But what about all the stuff in between? Most people, <laughs> most adults at least, are neither virgins nor sluts. Why isn't there a name for that? Precisely because it's semiotically superfluous, redundant. You don't need, because you assume that. So the same thing as I said before about um, the absence of, the, the semiotic absence of a term such as openly straight is that you assume that people are openly, that people are straight. If they're not straight, then they're going to announce it. That's the openly gay. Mm -hmm. But openly straight, there isn't such a concept. Mm -hmm. There's a concept such as polyamory, but there's no concept such as monoamory. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So then colloquially, we might say that we don't really talk about the usual. We talk about the unusual, statistically exactly. unusual in the technical exactly. sense, unusual. <laughs> Exactly. See it. Yeah. It's the extraordinary. It's the special. It's really a distinction between specialness and ordinariness. Mm -hmm. And when people, so I mentioned, you know, the whole thing about perception, figure and background. If you want to blend in, in a lot of environments, you're going to wear blue jeans. Because blue jeans is a kind of an unmarked part of your attire. But on the other hand, if you wanted to stick out, you would wear... Exactly. Loud pink velvet pants, like my daughter does sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So this is what I mean by the, the inverse relationships between the statistically popular, prevalent, 
in the semiotically prevalent. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of perceptual or linguistic filtering. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So you point out that markedness, if we can use that word, varies according to situations. And you give some examples, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, things like this. Can you talk a little bit about how it varies according to situations? Yes. Uh, For example, several years ago, I visited India. And most of the restaurants that I entered, Indian restaurants, of course, had on the menu a section at the end, non-vegetarian dishes. (laughs) The idea of marking non-vegetarian would have never occurred to me because I'm used to live in a society which marks vegetarian. Another thing that I noticed in India is that what we call arranged marriage, they call marriage. What we call marriage, they call love marriage. (laughs) In America, the concept of love marriage makes no sense because you assume that a marriage that is not arranged is married by love, is marriage by love. You don't have to say it. That's the point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is a Black History Month. What's Black History Month? Where is white history month? (laughs) Well, the assumption is that all the months that are not called black history months are white history months. And that's because of the semiotic asymmetry between whiteness and blackness. And this is what I meant about about, uh, Barack Obama being perceived as a black man whose mother was white rather than a white man whose father was black. Mm -hmm. Blackness is marked. Whiteness, at least until relatively recently, used to be unmarked. And the exception would be in white supremacist circles. And ironically, since I wrote the book and published it in 2018, whiteness has been much more marked because of the whole Trump phenomenon in the last few years. Yeah, I've seen this in my own reading, that things are now marked as white that were not marked as white exactly. before, um, exactly. which is a very interesting shift. And it, it's a nice segue into uh, the next question I had, and that is about the politics of marking. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, you point out that, um, you know, something like andronormativity. <laughs> yes. So I, I, yeah. use, I, I use, there is a term heteronormativity, which many of us are familiar now with. And uh, Heteronormativity includes the part that I'm interested in, which is that if you don't say about one that is gay, for example, you assume that he's straight. So there's an asymmetrical relationship between gayness and straightness. So so this is about gayness and straightness, but I I like the notion of normativity as as the suffix of the word, and I introduced also the notion of andronormativity, which suggests that femaleness is marked and maleness is unmarked. And by the way, this is a one of the few cases where it has nothing to do with statistics, yeah. because statistically, there is a few more females in the world than there are males. Nevertheless, maleness is assumed, taken for granted, soon by default, much more than Humanness. And then the same thing with whiteness and blackness, which so I talked about leuconormativity, leuco like in leukemia, having to do with whiteness, it's the Greek for white. And the same thing I talk about uh, um, ableness, 
able-bodied normativity, which suggests that unless I tell you that I have a disability, you'll assume that I am able-bodied. So this is why there are buildings that, uh, that are marked as wheelchair accessible buildings. I've never seen a building that is marked as foot accessible. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, you have a, another striking line in the book, which I'd like to again, again, in wonderful English, unmarked identities are not even considered identities. Yes. So I, I really haven't addressed yet what you asked about the politics. And, yeah, go ahead. And I, was, I was going in that direction. Part of political dominance is the privilege of not having to mark yourself, not having to be marked, mm -hmm. staying unmarked, being assumed. So you see it in the case of whiteness and blackness very clearly. You know, there's a book about uh, Obama called... Uh, President, you know, President while black, it would never occur to you to make such a statement about a white president. And by the way, the fact that as soon as Obama became president, the birthers, Trump and others, started to ask for his uh, birth certificate, I was thinking, you know, which other president in American history would have been asked by these people to show his birth certificate? Mm -hmm. And the point is that prior to Obama, presidents came from either English stock, from Dutch stock, and so on. But, you know, so Theodore Roosevelt, for example, was a Dutch-American. But I, I would be very surprised to see Donald Trump asking Theodore Roosevelt to show his birth certificate. <laughs> so part of the, the privilege of not being marked is that you're assumed by default. And that's part of what dominance is. Dominance is, for example, think about the term alternative medicine. What? So there's alternative medicine and medicine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah. there is medicine that is unmarked and that's seen as normal. So it's about normality. And then there is the alternative medicine, alternative lifestyle. What about non-alternative lifestyle? Does it have a name? <laughs> <laughs> I just interviewed a fellow who wrote a book about science and pseudoscience, and the same kind of name-calling goes on there because it turns out that a lot of things that were pseudosciences are now sciences, and a lot of things yes. that were sciences are now pseudosciences. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, so it's about boundary drawing, and there's always a yes. kind of plus or minus an evaluation that goes along with the marking process. Yes, so the irony is that the higher up you are in a political hierarchy, I'm talking about not individuals, but about groups, mm -hmm. the more likely you're going to stay unmarked. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, you talk about the process of foregrounding, and I've seen this happen a couple of times. We mentioned it in a second ago in the sense of things being now marked as white that were not marked as white as for, I studied Russia and I saw this happen in Russia in the 1990s when Soviet, well, in the 1980s really, when Soviet really meant Russian and no, right. <laughs> everybody right. knew that that's what it meant until nationalists started to point out that uh, Russian meant Russian. It's <laughs> a very good point. Yeah. So, so I have a whole chapter in the book about what I call assumption reverses 
where you you are trying to defiantly reverse what is assume, the assumed relationship between the marked and the unmarked. For example, there's a term that was introduced some time ago called cisgender. And if you're familiar with the term, it's almost normal to use it. A lot of people, and especially when I wrote the book three, four years ago, never heard of that term. And when they asked, what does it mean? I said, it means that you identify yourself as the gender that you were assigned when you were born. And the answer is usually, duh. <laughs> what do you expect? Yeah. And the whole point of those who introduced the term cisgender was to actually defy the abnormality of transgenderness by actually marking the cisgender. So there was no term for not being trans. There was trans and there's normal. Now there's trans and there's cis. And that, so in a way, semiotically speaking, they're on the same footing. The same thing happens with, um, with uh, you know, with neurological disorders that... Uh, that there's an assumption that you, if you have, you know, if you have, for example, if you're on the autism spectrum, you're going to be marked. If you are not, then there's no name for you. But now there is a term for, you know, neuro quote unquote normality. Yeah. And the reason that you have such a term is to stick it to those who won't like the conventional asymmetry. So, so this, is a, this is a very political way of doing it. But it's also done, you know, in humor. Uh, I'm quoting a comedian who said, why do we talk about uh, corn on the cob? Corn is naturally on the cob. We should talk <laughs> about corn and corn off the cob. It's very funny. Um, and, and actually, actually, it's very interesting. In, the, in one of the debates of the Democratic Party in 2008, the three, the three that who stayed in the, by the end of January in the race were Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and John Edwards. And uh, Obama was asked if he thinks that the 2008 election is going to revolve around race. And part of his answer said, well, you have to admit that this election, the Democratic side is bringing the first black person, the first woman, and uh, John Edwards. And he did, and uh, John Edwards, he waited, the timing was perfect, because when he said John Edwards, everyone burst out laughing, yeah. because John Edwards, it's the most white name that you can think of, yeah. so it's, what are you going to say, this is the first white candidate? Right, yeah, he's, he's so this profoundly is unmarked. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is humor, but in the book, I also talk about assumption reversals like this that are done artistically, like a lot of the admiration that we have for pieces by someone like uh, Moritz Escher, for example, or René Magritte, 
are about these reversals. In poetry, the same thing. In photography, those photographers who insist on taking pictures of quote-unquote everyday people and so on, rather than the sensational, mm -hmm. extraordinary one. And finally, in academia, I was a student of the person, Irving Goffman, who introduced into sociology what's called the sociology of everyday life, mm -hmm. which is a sociology of that which is unmarked. So it's, it's very radical epistemically, and it can be radical politically. I was going to say, I don't think I've ever met anyone who met Irwin Goffman. So that's, that's a plus for me, um, somebody I admire very much. Um, so the, the, the opposite of foregrounding is backgrounding, and that's where you take, uh, you're unmarking the marked. Right. Um, I, the, way, the way that I, throughout the book, I use the metaphor of a scale, where you have basically two two parts, one which is high and one which is low, if you talk about asymmetry. The marked is low because it's very weighty. It has a lot of significance semiotically, so it's weighty. And then there is a part that is unmarked that doesn't have any weight. And what I'm saying is that there are three ways to define that. One is to mark the unmarked, to take the pen that is higher and move it lower. The second is to unmark the marked, okay? For example, this point about the, the corn on the cob. Don't say corn on the cob, say corn. Then you have <laughs> corn off the cob. Don't say, uh, you know, the Women's National Basketball Association because uh, you don't have a men's National Basketball Association. It's the same thing with... Uh, this is uh, Morgan Freeman made this attack on the idea of the Black History Month. Says you don't have a White History Month, so why do you need Black History Month? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and academically, it's also seen, oh, and the third one is to actually create a symmetry. Symmetry instead of asymmetry. These are the three ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. So academically, the interesting thing is that starting in the early 80s, they started a study of masculinity, which is very interesting. So today, masculinity studies or men's male studies, very, very popular. But it wasn't prior to the early 80s. Because when you said gender, just like you said about Soviet and Russia earlier, when you said gender, the assumption was that you're talking about women. If you talk about men, it's not about gender. But men are gendered too. So those studies began in the 80s. And very soon after that came whiteness studies and, uh, and, uh, and uh, straightness studies. So to talk about straight, I mean, think about the concept of straight. What a strange concept. You can say that gay is a strange concept too. But gay has been accepted as part of social reality that you mark, whereas straight is something that to think that one would identify oneself as straight, they can't imagine that 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, I've, I've seen this in my own academic life. I was a professor for decades, and I remember learning about women's history. <laughs> yes. 
And then women's history kind of, I won't say it fell out of fashion, it still exists, but it became gender history. Right, exactly. And the whole point is to put male and female here on an equal footing semiotically. Yeah, and that's so, the that's the reverse the assumption reversal that they talk about. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about pronouns because it seems to me that this relates directly to what you're saying and the the current effort attempt I don't know gropings toward gender neutral pronouns. Yeah, so the, this was part of the same attack on the let's let's try to unmark what was marked and mark what was unmarked. So we had the terms such as uh, uh, chair. And then then, beca- then came chairman. And mm-hmm. I remember when I was introduced to English, when I was in my teens, this is the, co- this is the concept that I learned, chairman. But then you started to hear about chairwoman which came, you know, with the women's movement. And then came the chairperson. And the chairperson, or just chair, is neutralizes gender. So the same thing if you're talking about a firefighter. I was introduced to English, there weren't firefighters, there were firemen. Yeah, no, I was too. <laughs> and it's the, it's the same thing that it's, a, it's an ex- explicit semiotic attack on the asymmetry between whiteness and blackness, maleness and femaleness and so on. And, and, and the point is if you assume if you if you assume one of them by by default, why don't you assume also the other one? So you know I use this wonderful example of Serena Williams saying, I'm sick and tired of being called the best female tennis player in the world. There's no the male, the best male <laughs> tennis, tennis player in the world. Yeah, so, so it's a very interesting, the politics of uh, attacking semiotic asymmetry. So, so, for example, one of the things about gay marriage I remember that that it was said, let's stop calling it gay marriage. Yeah. Let's calling it just marriage, because when you call it gay marriage, it still pathologizes it, abnormalizes it, yeah, it stigmatizes it. Yeah. Yes. So the the book is really about the sociology and politics of normality, and uh, my me- big message, of course, is that normality is socially constructed. Things are not just normal. They are made to appear normal when you talk about social reality. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is when the process of making that reality becomes conscious, and I go back to this women's history to gender studies, yes. that was a very conscious effort on the part of people Absolutely. in academia to do that. Mostly, uh, my, my impression is these things happen kind of behind the scenes or or they're not as well thought out. They're not intentional. They just kind of evolve. But in in modern times, they're very explicit. I agree. And if you look at the history of a term such as sexual harassment, I find it a fascinating concept because there was a lot of sexual harassment before there was a concept. <laughs> yeah. So the, the question is what changed? And what changed is collective attention was put on it. You start noticing a phenomenon that you didn't notice before collectively. Of course, people knew about it. 
but it wasn't a thing because it didn't have a name. And, you know, and I'm, I keep thinking of George Orwell, who's 1984 featured the language Newspeak. And the point was in Newspeak is that you have to remove a lot of words from the vocabulary, not because specific words were problematic, but because there were too many words. And because there were too many words, you could express many ideas, which Big Brother and company didn't like. So yeah. you shrink the vocabulary. And the whole point about markedness and unmarkedness plays right into this. Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to close with a kind of mm, speculative question. It touches on a big topic. You mentioned Benjamin Worf at the beginning of the book, and I'd read Benjamin Worf when I was in college. And the question really has to do with whether language structures thought, and that's what Worf thought, or whether it's kind of the other way around, and that is experience structures language. Right. Yeah. I think it's both. I think it's both. Uh, I actually wasn't introduced to Worf in college, so you're actually lucky. I, I, I discovered him by myself after I graduated, and I couldn't believe my eyes and my brain, you know, thinking about his ideas. Now, Wolf himself was not a determinist, but I think that his theory I think that's right. was taken to be linguistic determinism. And I don't believe that Wolf thought that all thought comes from language, but he did make the point that language gives you the tools to think about things that you might not have thought without it. You know, I, I, make, I make a point in the book about concepts such as white trash. Uh, when I came to America and uh, I first heard the term, I couldn't believe that I heard it. And I, I started asking people, no, how, how do people use this term? It's such a racist term. And English-born speakers said to me, what are you talking about? So I said, so what's white trash? And they say, well, it's, it's, a, it's a poor person who lives in a trailer and blah, 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 like the people that we see in nomads land now. Yeah. And I said, wait a second, but what, what do you highlight here? the fact that he's poor or the fact that he's white. Because what I hear is that it's the surprise is that poor person is white. Yeah. Because if that poor person, poor person was black, would you say black trash? It would be semiotically superfluous yeah. from a racist standpoint. Yeah, there's definitely a hidden assumption behind white trash. Yeah, exactly. Most and Americans the same thing, realize, yeah. The same thing, you know, with... Um, with the notion of uh, domestic rape, marital rape. What's marital rape? Why do you use the term marital rape? And when it started, the first people who used it, used it to make a political point that rape occurs in marriage too, that women are not property of their husbands, wives are not properties of their husbands, and so on. Okay, but today, when I hear marital rape, I hear it differently. I hear it kind of, this is rape light. Yeah. It's not real rape. It's date rape. It's marital rape. And it defeats the purpose, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. That, that It's been a fascinating conversation. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? So what I'm working on now is actually at a very, very early stage. But I'll tell you what I was working on and f- completed after taking for granted. Okay. So fair enough. So I published a book in November called Generally Speaking. Uh, an inv- invitation to co- to concept-driven sociology. And it's a methodology book, but what I mean by methodology is a how-to book on how to do concept-driven research that doesn't begin with data and doesn't begin with big theory, but begins with concept. Concepts such as conspiracy of silence, concepts such as genealogical relatedness, concepts such as background, concepts such as default assumption, and so on, and concepts such as distinction or boundary. And I wrote a number of books that started like that and uh, developed in a way that people found very idiosyncratic and were very interested in, so how do you do it? So I actually wrote a book on how I've done it and I'm not the first person who have been using concept-driven thinking in sociology. And, you know, we mentioned Goffman before, obviously one of the kings of that. But no one had ever written about how to do that. And that book is a book about focusing, how to notice, how to focus, a book about how to use examples, how to transcend context, meaning how to look at comparisons that are cross-cultural, that are cross-historical, that are cross-domain, that are cross-level, and so on, and arrive at analysis of patterns that are trans-contextual, that transcend context. And so these are big words to talk about what is actually the book is about, which is how to identify parallel patterns in different domains, in different cultures, different historical periods, and so on. So, for example, in The Elephant in the Room, as I say, I wrote about conspiracies of silence. Well, conspiracies of silence were anywhere, because to my understanding, the conspiracy of si- the silence that a family exhibits around the drinking of one of its members is very similar to the silence that an organization exhibits by the corruption of one of its leaders. Everyone knows it, but no one talks about it publicly. And so so I talk about things like sex, like the Holocaust. You know, a lot of the stuff that developed into euphemisms. Why euphemisms? Because you can't say a certain thing. And the euphemisms appear about the Holocaust and appear about sex. What's the connection between the Holocaust and sex? It's actually almost sacrilegious to compare them. But deep down, there are going to be certain patterns, such as avoiding something, using a euphemism uh, to talk about during the war, or to talk about the Holocaust, or talking about uh, down there, about sex. They're very similar to my mind. 
Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And maybe we can have you back on the show to talk about that book. Um, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Eviatar Zodobovil about his terrific book, Taken for Granted, The Remarkable Power of the Unremarkable. It came out from Princeton University Press in 2018. I encourage you to go out and buy a copy of it. Eviatar, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah.